Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And today, before I begin, remember there is a website associated with this podcast called wealthformula.com. Check that out. Lots of resources there, things to sign up for, things to download, all sorts of stuff. This week's show is about the personalization of personal finance. Because, of course, personal finance is personal, but you can take it to the next level with, oddly enough, technology. And so, anyway, what is this all about? Um, personal finance. Uh, it's uh, the personalization of personal finance. Well, it's really about the decentralization of finance. Um and why is decentralized finance advantageous? Well, since we're talking about technology, why don't we just go ask ChatGPT? Here is the explanation value of decentralized finance from ChatGPT software itself. I'm not, I'll, I'll try to like not read this like a robot because I think that's the problem. Like you can't, you know, it's not something you really want to like hear. But it talks about accessibility. It allows DeFi allows anyone with internet connection to access financial services without needing to go through a traditional financial institution or intermediary. And this opens up financial services to people who might not have had access before, particularly those in unbanked regions. Because, of course, what decentralization is, this is me, not ChatGPT, by the way, you might have noticed the difference in voice. But the uh, the decentralization component, uh, all that's doing is taking the platform out, right? Making it a peer-to-peer -peer type of transaction. That's what the whole uh, idea is, and that's where the accessibility part is. Then there's transparency. DeFi operates on a public blockchain, which means that transactions and financial data are visible to anyone. This transparency reduces the potential for fraud or corruption and allows for greater accountability. There's security. Well, and uh, we'll go, that one's basically just about cryptography and, you know, making it uh, so that there can't be a catastrophic single point failure, which takes down the entire financial system. Number four is interoperability. DeFi protocols are designed to be interoperable, meaning they can work together seamlessly, allowing greater flexibility and innovation in the development of financial products and services. And then finally, it's efficiency. 
Basically here, it's saying DeFi operates 24-7, not on the hours of the New York Stock Exchange, right? That's kind of the concept, which I think that that always amazes me how we've not kind of, you know, not closed the markets for the weekend or followed the, uh, you know, Eastern time and the Wall Street market, uh, you know, for, for the entire uh, financial market to turn on and off. It's kind of crazy to me. Anyway, not bad, robot. I have to say, I mean, you, you're a little dry, uh, but, uh, but um, you know, I would have really liked to have the opportunity to use ChatGPT back when I was in college so I could have cheated and made uh, life a lot easier. And I'm sure the kids out there are going to do that, so that's, uh, that's good. Um, listen, here's the thing. Decentralized finance, bottom line, is going to become mainstream finance in our lifetime. That's why I keep hitting it hard on these, uh, these episodes. I know you, we've been talking a lot about technology. Large institutions are going to have to adjust, or they will simply be irrelevant as the phone booth. 20 years from now. I really believe that. So we need to understand what it's all about because, again, that's where the puck is headed and how do we figure out how to capitalize on it? Well, the only way you're going to do that is if you understand it. And the best way to understand it is probably not from a robot but from uh, an expert in this space. And that is what I've got for you this week on Wealth Formula Podcast when we come back from these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Emmanuel Daniel. He is an entrepreneur, author, and is recognized as a global thought leader in the future of finance. He is also the author of The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is Here. Emmanuel, thanks for joining Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you for having me on, but I, I enjoy the few podcasts that I've had uh, and watched and uh, let's see, um, you know, where we take this conversation. Oh, great, great. Well, you know, I think there's a lot to talk about here. You talk uh, in your book about everything becoming financialized. What does that mean? Well, very simply, anything that can be turned into data can be turned into a financialized product. Uh, and when you think about uh, what money is today, it's just numbers rolling and, uh and uh, the markets are looking for any form of data that they can trade on. 
Uh, and today, uh, you know, I think it was Jeff Emmel uh, in 2014 who said even GE is not going to be a manufacturing behemoth anymore. It's going to be producing lots of data out there and GE's, you know, balance sheet is going to start looking like uh, a trading book rather than a manufacturing company. Um, you know, and uh, the thing about markets is that uh, it goes around, it goes out there and looks for uh, and data in any form that's tradable. I mean, it started with LIBOR and indices and stuff like that. Uh, and today, um, you know, all sorts of businesses, Tesla is saying that it's more of a data company rather than, you know, manufacturing cars, you know, things like that. So, so the more data we have, I think entire civilizations are going to go in to look for, you know, what's tradable and what's not. Uh, and so we are on a learning curve, uh, you know, that, that, uh, that there will be data that uh, is tradable and there will be data that is non-tradable, um, you know, and over time we'll start settling down, but it's going to be a very, um, you know, rough ride. Uh, and, you know, there will be people out there who would, uh, run after certain data because they think it's uh, it's going to be going up uh, or it's going to be valuable, and then discover that you know in most cases data in the end is going to turn out to be commoditized. In other words, the more data you're going to have out there, uh, the you know the less valuable it's going to be. Uh, I I think that some of your viewers would have heard the phrase that data. Uh, it's the new gold or uh, new oil or something like that. Uh, I say in my book that data is actually vegetable in the sense that the more data you have, uh, you know, it loses its value. The less data you have is unusable. Uh, the older your data, it's unusable. The younger your data, uh, you need for it to mature, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, when, I say, when I say that we have become, we are creating a financialized economy, uh, you know the the uh, the perspective on things like GDP is also changing. I think in the U.S. now, um, you know, the statistics department has uh, put in elements uh, that constitute the GDP that is no longer manufacturing or uh, you know hardcore assets. It's uh, it now starts to look into soft assets, intangibles. Um, even, you know, uh, value that is created out of perception that is part of the GDP. So just based on that alone, uh, there is no saying that the U.S. GDP can go from, what, 21 trillion right now to 45 trillion um, based on a lot of uh, intangible assets, a lot of which will be data. So we need to prepare for that. Uh, for you know, for the rewriting of entire economies going going forward. What are the implications of that for you know our manufacturing state partners um, like China or India? Um, you know, it, it seems to me like if we're moving, obviously we've moved away from manufacturing in general. But what you're really talking about here is that you know all of these trading markets are just going to be data driven and you know, as you said, entirely intangible. So where does, what is that, what's the effect on, you know, our, our manufacturing uh, partners in, in various countries? I think that, it, you know, the U.S. has effectively given up its manufacturing capability. Uh, and it did, and it started on a journey in the 1960s, 90s, uh, in about 1995, when it was companies like GE 
saying to the unions and saying to um, you know investors that you know what we need to reduce cost uh, and since uh, labor in the U.S. is very hard very difficult to negotiate with, we're going to take it out to somewhere else. And this journey started in the 1990s. And, and that journey has gone to such a, um, you know, such a, you know, deep, um, um, you know, meaning that uh, you've actually created other countries like China and India, which have now taken on the, you know, the, the mantle of being the manufacturing states. Uh, and, they themselves will be going through a, you know, to a, a, a metamorphosis which will make them, um, you know, uh, uh, export their manufacturing capability uh, to other, you know, less developed countries and so on. What the U.S. has become, and and that's something that we need to put our finger on, is that it's become a um, the world's leading frontier of being able to handle information data. Um, and from data, uh, it then handles perception uh, because the real value in data is there are no underlining assets, as it were. Uh, it's actually driven a lot more by perception than anything else. We see that today uh, when you think about cryptocurrencies, for example, and where they get their valuations from. Um, it's um, it's basically uh, what the market perceives or what a segment of the market perceives uh, the value to be. Uh, and I think it cut you off there, like with you know that's that's kind of I think part of my what I'm trying to understand is you know with with most cryptocurrencies, if not all, um, they're really I mean I don't know how much actual data there is per se, rather than speculation, right? I mean what what so are we really talking about data or are we talking about speculation, ways to speculate? Well, uh, that's a very complex question in there because part of the speculation uh, comes from the years of cheap credit uh, and high liquidity, a lot more money than there are assets out there. Uh, and that's a historical problem that you know already exists. Uh, but there is a new element in uh, speculation that comes out of um, you know assets that are created in the digital world, uh, which have no underlining as uh, value value or uh, no underlining uh, business that drives it. Um, there is the promise of future business because uh, the digital world is creating applications, utilities that will be very specific to the digital world. Uh, and then there is speculation there as well. Sure. So the thing that I do in my book, which is, you know, towards the last chapter, I borrowed an idea uh, from a futurist in, in the 1990s. He wrote this. He said, society is um, you know, transitioning from or a transition from the tribal origins to institutions and then to markets and then to networks. And we are right now in the transition between markets and networks. So when you say, um, you know, speculation, uh, speculation in markets is uh, a little different from speculation uh, in the network phase. In the market space, the speculation is exactly the same as uh, everything that we have experienced uh, in the securities market, um, you know, when you think about uh, Bitcoin, uh, you act, the rules for Bitcoin are the same as the rules for, you know, any other securities that exist. And when you buy and sell shares and the reasons why it goes up and goes down exist, uh, operates on the, on the same principle for, for uh, you know, cryptocurrencies. But in the network world, 
there's a whole set of new rules that are just being created. So we need to sort of separate the two uh, and and figure out you know what is it that we are playing on, um, you know, and then and then start, sort of uh, track uh, where it's taking us. So you talk about your book's about the personalization of finance. Do you want to talk a little bit about you know, presumably with regard to all this data? Um, what what is what exactly is the personalization of finance? Well, the personalization of finance is that the the function of the intermediary uh, is being depleted. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that, of course, because of data, uh, but a lot of that has to do with so much technology being put into the ability of people to relate to each other, to transact value, uh, to to be able to actually exchange. Um, you know, tokens of value with each other, which do not require the intermediary anymore. Uh, so financial institutions of all kinds, whether they're banks or fund managers, uh, you know, uh, and, and markets as in general platforms um, and, and exchanges, uh, they're finding that their role is being diminished increasingly uh, and that Individuals like you and me, we will start to be be able to exchange value, uh, discover each other, trade with each other directly. So the personalization of finance is that the power of the relationship is actually uh, transitioning to the individual. Um, now this is a long, you know, um, a road. Uh, it, right. it, it will take, uh, you know, several generations to, um, you know, to finally begin to, you know, create new realities. Because what's happening now uh, is that the platform players, you know, it can be the Googles of the world uh, or a, you know, a exchange. And there are lots of different types of exchanges for cryptos, for commodities and, and so on. It's so easy to build an exchange now. Uh, the intermediaries are trying to redefine their role and still be relevant to the individual. Uh, you know, but increasingly we'll see that uh, the individual will have uh, a stronger, um, you know, um, role and a power in that equation. So, I mean, you know, what you're talking about, I think a lot is, you know, we've we've talked a lot about blockchain and smart contracts and that kind of thing. Um, it seems to rely fairly heavily on on that kind of technology. And this is the kind of technology that a lot of major major institutions like Chase Bank and stuff have been pretty antagonistic towards. And I'm curious, um, you know, I guess what what do you what do you anticipate the impact on those large institutions to be, uh, or do they figure out a way to you know to to uh, get themselves involved somehow? Um, you know, it's almost to me, it's almost like you've got this situation where you've got a Kodak um, and they're making, you know, cameras and film and stuff. And all of a sudden you've got a digital camera. How are you going to, you know, how are you going to save your business? So how, how do these institutions, how are they going to look at this? So what I'm saying in the book is that, and I'm saying, I, I speak to the institutions when I say this, is that Kodak invented uh, the digital film in 1995, together with a few other players, mm -hmm. uh, but it loved its core product so much, uh, which was the 35 mm, right. you know, yellow box. And continued selling that way well into the 2000s, while Sony took over the the mantle of the of the digital camera, and then later the iPhone came out, and by 2010, Kodak was in bankruptcy. So the funny thing about institutions is that. Uh, 
they love their products so much that they won't give up what they have sure. until you know they until you know it affects them directly. Now the thing about J.P. Morgan and you know a whole lot of institutions that uh, talk down to some of these innovations that are coming through is that they're creating their own tokens. They you know they're, right. they're creating their own response to this. That's the first thing to be said. Yeah. The second thing to be said is that um, today institutional investors are just as important as you know the odd guy who's investing in cryptocurrencies. They they have cryptos on their balance sheet, uh, you know, and that's affecting. Uh, the the valuation of you know crypto uh, as much as the you know the few individuals who are considered to be whales in the industry and so on, and um, the same central banks that are trying to create their own uh, you know central bank digital currencies, which are actually you know sort of chasing the technology that's being advanced on cryptocurrencies, uh, will start being able to have. Um, cryptos on their balance sheets from 2015. The Bank for International Settlement uh, has made it, uh, has set a set of rules uh, so that central banks can carry them as well. So while they are, you know, while they're talking against it, uh, they are also, um, you know, preparing for a world where cryptos will become, uh, you know, a, a necessity. Now, by saying all this, I'm not necessarily, um, you know, just uh, giving a blanket, um, you know, approval of mm-hmm. crypto. In fact, I think that the valuation of crypto uh, is uh, does you know distracts from the real um, the essence of what it is going the function that is going to be playing in the future. Um, you know, in all likelihood. Uh, the valuations that we see today is going to collapse in the in the future because uh, today they are dominated by a few whales whose transactions then chase prices up and down and so on. Uh, the more investors there are, the more liquidity there are in, in any market. Uh, it stabilizes the market. It brings valuations right. closer to you know what the trading uh, the trades are. So um, you know the 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 genie is out of the box. Uh, the question to now ask is, uh, what is the utility of these cryptos in the digital world? Uh, and we're starting to see uh, a lot of those utilities. When you take any one of those cryptos like Solana uh, or Tezos and so on, um, you know, they, they represent like 300,000 uh, programmers in open source platforms. Yeah. You know, building applications and working on them. Uh, there is not a single IT company in the world that has that amount of energy around. You know, just one proposition or one platform in that way. And then on top of that, they are being funded uh, through all the money that is being put into cryptos uh, to be able to you know make money on the on the on the applications that they're developing. Uh, so that's the the real value of the crypto world. Now the question then is. Uh, how is traditional banking that we are familiar with uh, going to uh, morph uh, and embrace some of the technologies that are being created in the crypto space? Uh, and I've been looking at a lot of the you know utilities being created in crypto. Um, I can actually see how they can apply back into traditional banks. Um, you know, I've, I've been recently, you know, wrong after I've completed the book, um, I started looking at specific areas of the banking industry. So like the treasury function, for example, 
that's actually decentralized finance. Uh, you know, in, what a treasurer does in a bank is that on a daily basis, he tries to square out all the positions that the bank has, uh, remove as much of the risk and, and uh, increase the profitability of the bank for the amount of assets that it holds on any one day. And that's becoming increasingly difficult to do for any institution. And yet in the crypto space, uh, there are hundreds of little applications, um, you know, with algorithms put into them that enable um, the crypto world to function, um, you know, seamlessly. Uh, and so I can see some of the technology being applied to traditional institutions. Uh, you know, so the genie is out of the box. Uh, we're not going back to a non-crypto world, right. uh, you know, not to ask is what is the utility of what's happening in the digital space that's going to transform uh, the, the the you know the the manual world that we are familiar with. Sure, sure. Uh, how do you think you know a number of these um, a number of cryptocurrencies are under scrutiny from the SEC and they've got all these other regulatory issues? Um, doesn't that have to sort of uh, fix itself before this whole movement starts. I guess there are some, certainly there are some um, platforms that have been pretty good uh, about trying to, trying to follow the rules. I mean, uh, for example, Hedera, I think is a good one. Um, but in general, how much is, are those regulations, regulatory issues going to slow down the process? You know, we, we live in a world where the regulators are chasing after the innovations that are taking place. Uh, and so, you know, they, they, there will always be gaps and there will always be, um, you know, the, the need to try and make sense of where this is going and what the, the proper, um, you know, regulation should be. Uh, and we are now at the point where the regulators in the U.S. are asking, um, you know, whether crypto is an asset or a security uh, you know, that's a very basic question. Uh, and, you know, it'll debate that through until it comes to an understanding. At the same time, the technology itself will keep moving and it will keep evolving such that um, maybe it won't be a security. Um, it will clearly not be a security further down the road. Um, you know, and uh, when we think about uh, all that's happening on the regulatory front, we think about every time there's been an innovation, um, you know, what was the story? So, you know, in the early 1900s, uh, after the automobile became commonplace, in other words, you know, Henry Ford made it uh, possible for anyone to have uh, automobiles, uh, the original set of regulations were stacked up against the automobile because they were trying to safeguard, um, you know, the traditional horse carriages. So, you know, you couldn't go ahead of the horse and the automobile was heavy, it damaged the streets and, and all of that. Um, you know, and then over time, uh, the automobile became uh, quieter, faster, lighter, um, you know, and safer. So uh, the regulations didn't apply, uh, you know, after a while. So I think that's what we will see uh, in the crypto space, um, you know, and, and right now, the biggest problem in the crypto space is that uh, because um, the early investors in the crypto um, market uh, still control so much of the you know the value in the market. Uh, we need to see that release over time uh, and before the market becomes stabilized. Uh, and the valuations that we see in the market uh, actually you know distracts from the 
the utility of the technology as it's evolving. Uh, so we need to see that phase work its way through uh, before we start making sense of what you know uh, uh, what the technology is capable of. You might have alluded to it a little bit earlier. What's your take or your your knowledge on uh, this idea of central, you know, central bank uh, decentralized uh, currencies? Um, so there's yeah. been a lot of talk about those. Do you have a sense of you know how realistic that is? And if it is, then what 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 serve it? What does it? Uh, what purpose does it serve? Yeah, you know, central bank digital currencies. Yeah, that's what you're 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 meaning. Now, the thing is that I've been following central banks, you know, throughout my nearly thirty years of following the industry, and I actually, you know, visit the Bank for International Settlements uh, in Basel, um, and I know, you know, quite a number of uh, you know central bank governors and and how uh, you know I walk into central banks. I know how they operate. Um, and still, I'm just surprised uh, at the level of uh, support that they are giving themselves for the idea of a central bank digital currency. Um, now, um, I've also been following the central bank digital currencies from the time when it was not a big topic, um, you know, in, in the early to 2010s, uh, where there were central banks that experimented with it and then put it aside saying that, you know, that's not something that we want to, you know, go ahead with. Uh, and I think it's because China took it on and made it uh, a big project uh, that um, the other central banks you know, also fell in line and said, you know, we want to do this too. That's how central bankers operate, by the way. Um, you know, every time uh, one central bank comes up with an idea um, that the others like, and, and then everyone else follows through. So just recently, Jeremy Powell saying that, no, we're going to keep uh, the, um, you know, inflation targeting in the U.S. to 2%. Uh, he was actually repeating um, you know, an idea that originated with New Zealand about 20 years ago, uh, you know, and then it became popular for just about every central bank in the world to um, to subscribe to this idea of inflation targeting. And so today, uh, this notion that every central bank should uh, issue a central bank digital currency is very popular. But having said that, uh, in a number of countries, if the central bankers just went into the streets and just asked people if uh, they wanted, uh, they subscribed to the idea that a central bank should issue a central bank digital currency, which is direct from the central banker to the end user, which, by the way, bypasses the commercial banks. And so all the central banks that are toying with this technology are saying, hmm, uh, you know, we don't really need the banks uh, when we do this, uh, but we'll give them a role. We will make them be the issuer of the central bank digital currency. So that in itself, uh, you know, creates the first problem, which is that it's a solution looking for a problem. You know, if you're going yeah. to listen to me, the, your own institutions, uh, then why are you doing this? You know? Well, and then, uh, and then the other question to is, is that, you know, I mean, Frankly, most, uh, you know, look at dollars. Most dollars are digital already. So what's the additional benefit of having the de decentralization? Um, yeah. Yeah, what's the point? So the, the digitization that you're talking about is uh, a digital account, which is, 
your money is in a bank and when you transfer it to another person, you're doing it digitally anyway. But that's uh, fiat money and that's actually a balance of trans- uh, transfer of balance, which is a balance sheet problem. Uh, you know, there is no real money moving anywhere. It's, uh, you know, it's my account against your account uh, and we just square out our accounts to each other. Uh, a central bank digital currency is actually a token that gets transferred. So uh, regardless of the balance sheet, uh, you know, a, a digital token, just like a physical token, uh, got passed on from one person to the next. Uh, you know, so, so you can avoid bank- the issue of settlement, I guess, in that matter, right? So that's what they're saying. Uh, but what's interesting is that everything that's happened in the crypto world has gone on fast, faster and further down the road than what the central bankers are doing today in, in the experiments for trying to set up uh, central bank digital currency. Uh, you know, and I've actually visited uh, two of the countries that I've already implemented them. Uh, and the governors have told me uh, personally that uh, the projects have been a failure, um, you know, and and that the take-up of central bank digital currencies uh, have, have not been very good because, um, you know, the traditional banks still believe in their credit card swiping technologies because sure. that's where they make-, they, they make their money there, right? And in that, in, in that is what I, where I see a lot of the challenge because a lot of these institutions are so powerful uh, and in terms of their lobbying and everything else to just kind of uh, continue to sidetrack these things. But I would, I would imagine that over time there would be a, uh, you know, inevitability about it that would make some of them adapt, just like in your, your example of Kodak and Sony. Well, and, and in order to adapt, they have to keep up with the speed and the depth of the technology as applied in open source. Uh, open source is the world where, um, you know, any uh, IT programmer can just go on to a platform uh, and look at, you know, other IT programmers, uh, you know, working on the same applications as you are, uh, you know, and there's a very powerful force in which uh, technology is being created. Uh, which central banks will never be able to match. Uh, you know, just when they get their, their central bank digital currencies right, uh, the applications for it would have gone like 10 times down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so I'm not confident, I'm not convinced that, uh, that any central bank digital currency will actually take off in, uh, in, a, in a meaningful way, uh, you know. And in fact, there is an alternative, which is, for central banks to tame what's happening in uh, stable coins today uh, and to uh, onboard uh, the stable coins that meet regulatory requirements, uh, which have uh, good balance sheets uh, that are audited uh, to be to uh, play the function of a central bank digital currency, because there uh, the central bank is actually benefiting from the energy that's out there. Fascinating stuff, uh, Emmanuel. The book, again, is The Great Transition, uh, The Personalization of Finance is here. Uh, Presumably it's uh, available at uh, their usual outlets such as Amazon. You have another book coming out too. What is that book called? The Winning Civilization, yeah. Yeah, what is is that one about and sort of at a high level? Actually, when completing the book on, um, you know, The Great Transition, The Personalization of Finance is here, I came to the conclusion that 
if finance is going to be highly personalized, it's going to have an impact in uh, you know on on how entire societies are going to be organized. Right. Uh, and so this is this book is about. Um, you know, the critical success factors for uh, countries, uh, you know, to have in place uh, for them to make that transition. Uh, and as I alluded to in our conversation, the U.S. still leads um, in the use of information. Uh, it, when I say it leads, it means that it is both a victim as well as a purveyor of the future uh, of information and data, um, and and that's why we see a lot of the confusions that we see today. But uh, what the U.S. learns, the rest of the world will learn in the future. Emmanuel, Daniel, everyone. Uh, Emmanuel, thanks for being on Wealth Formula Podcast this week. Thank you very much for having me on. Bob. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, certainly a uh, very interesting show, I think, and uh, something to th- think about now how in the heck can we capitalize on it and quite honestly i have not uh, figured that out for myself yet however maybe i'll ask chat gpt and get an answer um that's it for me this week on wealth formula podcast thanks for joining me this is buck joffrey signing off thank you for listening to the wealth formula podcast visit us on the web at wealthformula.com the information contained in this podcast are opinions not fact as always consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.